I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, it was 15 years ago this October that a young man named Matthew Shepard was seduced away from a bar in Laramie, Wyoming, tied to a fence, and beaten ferociously in what would become one of the most notorious hate crimes of our time. The story of Matthew Shepard has been told and retold in books, movies, and of course in the play The Laramie Project. But none of these productions have shown us the person behind the icon Matthew Shepard. This fall, for the first time, the world will get to know Matt Shepard. A group of Matt's high school friends have produced a documentary about the person behind the story. And joining us tonight are Michelle Hasaway, Liam McNeef, Zena Barkawi, and Jason Marsden, some of Matt's friends who share their story in this film. And also joining us tonight, Keena Crocker is back for the last of a four-part series on the legal aspects of LGBT relationships. And we'll check in with Nathan Mansky the creator of I'mFromDriftwood.com. All of this is coming up right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, September 22nd, 2013. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. 16-year-old Cassidy Lynn Campbell broke down in tears Friday night when she learned that she had been crowned homecoming queen. The senior at Marina High School in Huntington Beach was born male, but told the LA Times that she always felt like a girl. In high school, she began taking hormone blockers and estrogen injections prescribed by an endocrinologist and made the transition to living as a girl. She decided to run for homecoming queen in part to make a statement. Cassidy said, If I win, it would mean that the school recognizes me as the gender I always felt I was. But with all of the attention, I realized it was bigger than me. This last Friday at Marina High's homecoming pep rally, the field of 10 homecoming queen candidates was thin to five, Cassidy among them. At halftime, school district spokesman Tom DeLapp said the five finalists were called up and balloons were released from a box to announce the winner. White for the princess and bright yellow and blue for the queen. DeLapp said, quote, Cassidy was stunned. She kind of broke down on the podium. Students started chanting her name and then ran up to give her a big hug. Cassidy said, I was so proud to win, not just for me, but for everyone out here. It really shows the progression of our times. And here locally, LGBTQI Days of Films will happen on October 19th and 20th at the Sebastopol Center of the Arts, 282 High Street in Sebastopol. The center's film program department will host Sonoma County's only festival dedicated to showing films by, for, and about the LGBTQI community. The goal of Film Days is to offer quality films that enlighten and inform. The series producers are confident that this year's slate will offer something for everyone in the LGBTQI community, and their supporters will be proud of it. The festival kicks off on Saturday, October 19th at 7 p.m. with a sweeping feature documentary, I Am Divine. This celebration of one man's extraordinary life traces the gay icon's humble beginnings as an overweight, bullied Baltimore youth to an underground film star, to an internationally recognized drag superstar. Sunday, October 20th, will offer a full day of stunning short films, enlightening documentaries, and a gorgeous feature film. A short program will begin the day at 11 a.m. The films have yet to be announced. At 1.30 p.m., the feature documentary Puzzles will be shown. Puzzles tells the story of a brutal attack on a gay bar and how the community on both sides of the issue of LGBT rights responded. It takes us directly into the world of people who are changed by hate. 
Director Tammy Gold will host a talkback Q&A following the screening. Another engaging documentary, Intersection, will be shown at 4 p.m. This eye-opening film profiles the lives of some 1 in 1,500 to 2,000 persons who are born without clearly defined genitalia. LGBTQI Days of Film will close at 6.30 p.m. with a screening of the poignant feature film Reaching for the Moon, which was awarded Best Feature at the Frameline 37 Film Festival in San Francisco. This beautiful film explores the life of Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Elizabeth Bishop. Tickets are now available and can be purchased through the Sebastopol Center of the Arts located at 282 High Street in Sebastopol. Now here's your calendar of events for the coming week. On Monday, September 23rd and every Monday at 5.30 p.m., the Petaluma Health Center will host an LGBT support group at 1179 North McDowell Boulevard in Petaluma. And also on Monday at 7 p.m., the Parents of Transgender Youth Support Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. On Tuesday, September 24th at 7.30 p.m., the Trans Group will also meet at the Positive Images Center. And on Thursday, September 26th at 10 a.m., Out and About will host a Walk This Way in Howarth Park, 630 Summerfield Road in Santa Rosa. Meet at the tennis courts for an hour and a half walk. For a complete calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And if you have news or an event you'd like to share with our listeners, be sure to tell us about it by going to our own website at OutBeatNews.com. And follow us all week long on Facebook and Twitter for the latest LGBT news and information from here in the North Bay and beyond. For Gary Carnavalli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. We begin tonight by welcoming back family law attorney Kina Crocker from Crocker Law who's here with the last part of her four-part series on the legal aspects of LGBT relationships. So far, we've talked about marriage. We've talked about merging property and adopting children. So in this fourth segment, uh, we're going to talk about the most unfortunate, what happens if things don't work out. And it seems like kind of a negative way of finishing uh, this informative series. But, you know, there's some really important considerations uh, in how to dissolve a formalized relationship. Talk about the differences between ending a domestic partnership and a legal marriage. Um, ending a domestic partnership and ending a legal marriage are the same. It's the, the process is the same. You have to file a petition for dissolution with the court and the law now allows for you to be able to end both a domestic partnership and a same-sex marriage in the same action, so you don't have to do two separate cases. Um, The next step in the process for a divorce is uh, disclosing all your financials, basically all of your assets, all of your debts, all of your income and your expenses. You lay it out for the other party and say, this is what I believe to exist in our relationship. These are the values of all of these items, and both sides are required to create those documents and exchange them with each other. And the law is very serious about full disclosure of all assets and debts, income and expenses, and requires that that be done. Um, Once those are exchanged, the parties in the most... uh, amicable scenario, the parties basically sit down and say, okay, we agree on the values. This is how we're going to divide our property. This is who will be responsible for these particular debts. And then talk about um, support and whether that's something that should be considered. And if a couple does this mutually, you know, they're, they're amiable, they both agreed that, you know, the relationship isn't going to work out. Is this something that a couple can lay out and do for themselves or should they each get representation? 
If it's an amicable situation, yes, it can certainly be done without an attorney. Um, the only thing that I would caution is uh, to make sure that the paperwork is done correctly. The court will kick back paperwork if it's not done correctly or if there's something missing or if there's something that the parties are trying to agree to that is just forbidden by the law. So it's important to... Um, if you are in a situation where you can agree on how to divide everything up, um, if you, when once you get to the point of drafting an actual written agreement that sets forth the all the uh, terms, it would be good to just run it by an attorney to make sure that it will pass muster with the court. And that sounds particularly important if there is both a domestic partnership and a marriage. I know you mentioned that you can dissolve both at the same time, but I would imagine you would have to request that or specify that in probably a special form. Well, we do actually now have special forms that allow for you to check the box for both. Uh, tell us uh, again, we talked in the in the last segment about California's property laws, but, but talk a little bit more about what community property actually means and what is included in that and what would not. Um, so for... For real estate specifically, in order to figure out how to divide it in a divorce, you would figure out the value of the property, determine whether one person will end up keeping the home. Um, if the parties decide to sell it, it can be as simple as selling the property and dividing the proceeds. If not, there would have to be a buyout of one person's interest, which could be just a lump sum payment to the other person, uh, an outright payment, or offsetting with other assets. Maybe there's a large retirement account that um, can be offset can be offset against in order to divide the property equally. Um, but there are also considerations of, like for example, a down payment. If a person puts a down payment into the home that comes from separate property, that person would be entitled to a reimbursement of that down payment dollar for dollar before the equity in the home is divided. So there are some um, exceptions to the straight 50-50 line. So that's interesting. So let's say that, if I understand you right, if one party comes into the relationship and puts the entire down payment down, they're bringing assets from prior real estate deals, let's say, and 10 years later, the couple ends up divorcing. The person who did the original down payment is entire, entitled to all of that back? That's correct, up to the amount of equity that's in the home. If the, and we've seen with housing uh, over the past years, um, a lot of clients have come to us and said, you know, there is no equity in the home right now. We're actually upside down. In that instance, no, you're not going to get your down payment money back. But if the money is there, then yes, you'd be entitled to it. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about child custody, because that always seems to be one of the most emotional and, and perhaps challenging areas to, to figure out. How is that handled? Are there any differences with LGBT couples as opposed to heterosexual couples? No, not in that regard. Um, custody issues are hard for everyone. And in most instances, I mean, I would hope that the parties could come to some agreement uh, with regard to custody. But if not, which is the way of the world these days, um, you know, it's children and money are, are at the heart of the most emotional um, issues that people have to deal with in divorce. And so um, for custody, if, if there's no agreement, uh, there are what they call child custody recommending counselors at the court. Basically, you go in and you talk to them. Uh, the two parents sit down and talk to that one neutral person. And um, that recommending counselor makes a recommendation to the judge as to what the custody arrangement should be after listening to the, the parents talk. Um, the court then hears from the parents as to whether they agree to the recommendation from the counselor. And then the court makes an ultimate determination of what custody should look like parenting time for each parent. It's much better for the parents to try and work it out, though, 
because they will be in control of the outcome rather than relinquishing that control to the court. Right. I would imagine there's so many practical aspects around custody and time and work schedules and so forth. It would be better to sit down and do that. I don't imagine that that happens every time, though, does it? Well, if the, if the clients are coming to me, then something has broken down and they're not able to do so. But in many instances, yes, they, people can sit down and figure out, look at our schedules, and then also look at the, uh, the age of the child. If the child is um, an infant and still nursing, well, it would be important to be with the nursing parent um, the majority of the time versus a 15-year-old. Uh, maybe it's a little bit more flexible in terms of how much time the, the, that 15-year-old would spend with each parent. Um, there are many cases where the two people sit down with the mediator and keep the entire issue out of court, and the mediator can give uh, advice as to what would be best for the child in terms of developmental, uh, their developmental stages and their age at the time. Great. Well, we've talked throughout this series about the importance of a living trust. If for whatever reason that trust needs to be dissolved, let's say that it's in the case of a divorce, how do, a co- how do couples go about doing that? Um, I generally recommend that the couples go to the person who drafted that living trust, uh, and if that's not possible, to go to an estate planning attorney to talk about what the requirements would be. And it also depends on the living trust itself. The trust itself may have language in it that says, this is how you dissolve um, this particular trust. Thanks, Kina, for sharing your expertise in this series. And if you'd like to talk with attorney Kina Crocker to find out more about any of the topics covered in this series, you can learn more at crockerlaw.com. And we'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Rick Dean, Executive Director of Face-to-Face Sonoma County AIDS Network. There are more than 2,000 people living with HIV in Sonoma County. 500 of them do not know they have it, and neither do their partners. Face-to-Face offers free, anonymous HIV testing with results in just 20 minutes. Knowing your HIV status can be life-saving for you and for those you love. Visit Face-to-Face in Santa Rosa. Call us at 544-1581 or visit f2f.org. Fifteen years ago, on October 7, 1998, 21-year-old Matthew Shepard was seduced away from a bar in Laramie, Wyoming by two men he had never met before. Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson ended up robbing Matt, tying him to a fence and viciously beating him with the butt of a handgun until he was left unconscious. Matthew died five days later in a hospital with his family at his side as the world looked on, wondering why this happened. Matthew Shepard became an icon for hate crimes and hate crime legislation. The many books and movies that followed told most of the story, but other than the book written by his mother, Judy Shepard, no one has really shown the world who Matthew Shepard, or as his friends knew him, Matt Shepard, was until now. A group of Matt's personal friends are releasing a documentary this fall called Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine. And joining us now are Michelle Hasaway, Liam McNeef, Zena Barkawi, and Jason Marsden. Welcome everybody to Outbeat News in Depth. Thanks for having us, Greg. Well, before we get into talking about the documentary, Michelle, I'd like to start with you. Tell us about how you first met Matthew Shepard, or as you knew him, Matt Shepard. Well, the very first time I met Matt was actually at an audition for a school play, uh, funny enough. Uh, We were read opposite of each other for a play that I think neither one of us ended up getting cast in. But um, basically, we both went to high school together at a boarding school in Switzerland called the American School in Switzerland. And uh, he was two grades ahead of me, so we didn't have classes together. But, um, you know, it's such a small school. Everyone knew each other, and we just grew 
close, um, doing a lot of plays together and rehearsing for months at a time. Um, in one play, he played my brother, and then another, he was my father, which was funny. But that's that's how we we met was mm-hmm. through a boarding school and through theater. So tell us about some of your memories of him, and what was he like in high school? The first time I met Matt, he was actually quite shy, and I think in looking back, he was probably just, you know, homesick and just trying to figure out his place in school. But then eventually, you know, he just became, he just came out of his shell and was the Matt who I came to know as being, you know, very gregarious and friendly. I mean, he was, I like to say, the unofficial mayor of Tassis. He literally was friends with with everyone, with kids in his grade, kids like below. With um, he was friends with a lot of the staff and the teachers, and um, I think a lot of us actually had this kind of saying about Matt that he never met a stranger, just because he was so friendly. Like everyone he met was like a potential new friend. So Matt was just he was awesome. Like <laughs> he was just so full of life and very you know, curious about the world, like he loved languages. I remember when he met my mom, he had her, like, teach him all, like, the, the like, colloquialisms and, like, bad words in Tagalog, which was hilarious. Um, so he was just, like, really funny and just um, just very kind. Like, I, he was, I remember him being very, very sensitive um, and just being, like, such a good friend to others. Mm-hmm. I recently got an email from an old Tassis friend of mine who remembered... She wasn't really close with Matt, but she remembered this one time he found out that she had a really bad migraine, and he dropped everything to find, you know, help find this, like, medicine for her to help her, like, feel better. And that's kind of just who Matt was, just so kind and just so caring about, like, everyone around him. Mm. Now, Zaino, let's go to you. You were also very good friends and very close with Matt in high school and, and actually beyond high school. Tell us about your memories of him. Sure. Yeah, I met Matt our junior year of high school. Um, Being in boarding school, of course, you're closer than, you know, I think your typical uh, relationship. So, you know, you're living together, spending all of your time together. And then on top of that, Matt's parents and my parents were neighbors overseas in Saudi Arabia. So we also got to spend our spring breaks and our summer breaks together outside of school. So really just a lot of time together. And Matt was just a really good friend. I think the type of friend anyone would be lucky to have. Um, When we spent time together in Saudi Arabia, you know, there really wasn't much for us to do, so we had to find ways to to pass the time. One thing I remember uh, we did a lot was play Jeopardy on on a computer that we had. And, of course, this is pre-the Internet, pre-Google. So we'd play this Jeopardy game. We figured out a way to pause the game when we didn't know the answer, and we'd call Judy Shepard, Matt's mom, for the answers. So she was, our, she was our Google at that time, and, you know, Judy being so intelligent, she typically knew the answers. So that was um, one thing we would do. You know, um, in high school, it was just a lot of joking around, a lot of laughing. Uh, I always say Matt was larger than life, especially considering his small stature, uh, you know, just finding pranks, doing things um, to, to make each other laugh, really. Um, another memory I have, you know, after high school, so Matt and I stayed in, in very good touch between uh, the three years between high school and up until his death, and saw each other multiple times and took a trip to San Francisco together, and um, he, he came to visit me in Reno 
a couple of times as well. I remember in San Francisco um, specifically getting milkshakes at Orphan Andes in the Castro and having a conversation there about the difference between a milkshake and a malt shake. And it just stands out in my mind as such a vivid memory. I can picture him sitting there talking about this. And again, I think it just speaks to his his creative, intelligent mind, always asking questions and always wanting to, to think about things critically. Wow. Well, Jason Marsden, you're the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation now, but but you met Matt after high school and shortly before his murder in Laramie, Wyoming. Tell us about how you met and some of your memories of Matt. I met Matt in um, somewhere in 1997-98 in Casper, Wyoming at a birthday party for someone who turned out to be a mutual friend. And... Um, I immediately found out how interested in politics and public affairs and, and uh, foreign affairs he was when I walked into that place. I I was a writer for the Casper Star Tribune, which is Wyoming statewide newspaper, and I was opinionated in 25 or so and had my thoughts I needed to share with everyone about the news. So I wrote a column from time to time on the opinion page that ran under my picture. So when I walked into this little apartment, college student apartment, um, you know, you walk in the front door, you're in the living room, the kitchen's right in front of you, a little place like that. And um, Matt was this short blonde kid um, standing in the kitchen and he looked at me a bit funny and came right over to me and said, you're Jason Marsden from the Casper Star Tribune, aren't you? And I said, yes. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, I'm just really embarrassed that the newspaper uh, has had almost nothing in it about what's going on in Afghanistan. Do you know what's going on in Afghanistan? And, you know, I was a news junkie and a reporter. I had the AP wire on my computer all day long, every day at work, and I I didn't really know what was going on in Afghanistan. And this was at the time that it was just beginning to emerge that women's rights and uh, particular education of girls, uh, women's ability to go out in public were being rapidly eroded by the by the uh, religious extremists who had taken the country over and what had been a country where there, there was, at least in Kabul, some, uh, some degree of equality for women, and at least in education, um, was disappearing. And Matt was outraged about it and shared his thoughts on it. And I went back to the newspaper the, the next week and kind of tried to do my research on it and mentioned it to the Wire editor. But it just really stuck with me. This was a town of 50,000 people, there's a handful of people who probably care very much about international politics and human rights issues, and the thought that I had bumped into one at a college student's birthday party was just, was so surprising to me that he just really stuck with me. And then we would run into each other from time to time at these little, these little house parties, which was the extent of gay social life in Casper in the 1990s, and he would always want to talk about what was going on in the world, what the Clinton impeachment was going on sort of around that time period. A, a lot of political angst amongst, you know, left of center people in Wyoming um, who were quite a small tribe then and a smaller one now. So he just made a tremendous impression on me of being someone who is, you know, very different from your run-of-the-mill uh, Wyomingite. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I would imagine with his experience studying abroad that he was, in fact, a worldly guy. And I, and I know his mom told me about how he was well-versed in several languages and, and really enjoyed engaging in the, in the political debate. I want to go back to 1998 in October. Michelle, how did you hear the news of Matt's attack? I would kind of replay that day over and over occasionally. Like, I remember it distinctly. I was in my apartment in Boston. I was a sophomore in film school at the time. And I got this phone call from my older sister, and she was asking me, you know, oh, is, is your friend Matt Shepard, is he from Wyoming? You know, you have to turn on the news. This horrible thing has happened, you know. And, you know, I turned on the news, of course, and, and, saw, and saw what happened and saw his picture, you know, him in, in the blue shirt standing in the kitchen. Like, sure enough, that was him. So, like, I, I remember it very, very distinctly. Hmm. Now, Liam, you didn't know Michelle at the time that Matt was attacked. When did you two meet? Michelle and I met in uh, 2000. Um, and, you know, I, I distinctly remember as we uh, started to become close, you know, she was still kind of very uh, affected by what had happened. And it was something that, you know, she was still, it was still hard for her to, to talk about it without getting very emotional. And, you know, it was something that she, you know, it was it was a couple of years afterwards, obviously, at that point, but it was something that she was still kind of very visibly struggling with. Oh, I'm sure. Well, Jason, now, it must have been really extraordinary for you as a reporter being at the news desk and then hearing word of Matt's attack come across the newswire. Talk about what that experience was like for you. Well, it was I was shielded from having to, you know, file daily copy on this under my byline or be involved in it because uh, it was immediately apparent um, that he was a friend of mine and as the news coverage the first day was unfolding we had a reporter from our Cheyenne Bureau who went over to Laramie real quick and started talking to police and to friends of Matt's and trying to figure out what had gone on and um, a friend of Matt's whom I knew mentioned to, to our reporter that Matt was a friend of mine, so this went up the chain to the editors, and they, there, there was some. It's all so strange. There was some commotion around the fax machine and press release being rushed over to the state desk, and um, there was um, a remark that there, there looked like there had been an aggravated assault that could potentially be a homicide, and sometime within the first hour or so one of the editors came over to my desk and had some papers and asked me to go back to the conference room. And I sat down there and they slid this press release across the desk from the Albany County Sheriff's office about just the barest facts of what had happened. Someone had been found grievously assaulted, medical treatment, some initial handwritten notes that were on it about victims' parents live in Saudi Arabia, trying to get in touch with them. And long story short, he was apparently, the victim was apparently a friend of mine, according to what our reporter had learned, and did I in fact know Matt Shepard? And I was just so, I just must have blanched. I was so confused. And um, there had already been some contact to the newsroom from um, one of uh, one of Matt's friends who had identified me as being one of his friends. And they said, you know, this obviously 
wouldn't be involved in in the coverage, but if being around, oh, this is going to take the paper over tomorrow probably because any kind of any kind of violent crime of this degree is very rare in Wyoming. It would be front page news uh, on, under almost any circumstances that something like this went on, right. regardless of the motivation of it and and so on. And you know, this is 1998. I didn't. I had a 300 square foot studio apartment. I didn't have the internet at home, and um, I felt like I should stay around the newsroom and find out what was going on, and if there was some help I could provide. You, you have the mindset as a reporter of trying to get all the information you can, and you become aware also of the mindset of the victims, the community, the neighbors, the investigating officers, the medical professionals, and you get sensitized to that really quickly. I think there's a cynical view of how the media you know, just sort of drools over anything horrible that they can write about but I can tell you it we in that newsroom at that time anyway we certainly didn't feel that way in a mm -hmm. small place like Wyoming um, it's it's very common that you would have other personal connections with the people you're covering and then to actually be one of the people who had the personal connection to the victim was was another step uh, above that in terms of the the gravity and the just sort of pit in your stomach you get from it I'm feeling it right now just mm. Yeah. And I'm sure for all of you, it's been really tough as you've gone back and looked at all of these memories and emotions as you made this film. Michelle, tell us what inspired you now, 15 years later, to make a documentary about your friend? You know, it has been 15 years since Matt died, but to be completely honest, like sometimes it, it feels like it happened yesterday. Um, you know, when Matt died, that was sort of the first time I saw, like, how hostile and like how cruel and violent the world could be. Um, so it just was incredibly devastating and very hard to get through and it just marked, it just stayed with me. Um, so, you know, as a filmmaker and as a friend, I always felt that when I was emotionally and artistically ready, I wanted, I felt this obligation, you know, to honor Matt and in the best way that I knew how, which was through film. Um, and another heartbreaking thing to me was was seeing Matt in the news reduced to, you know, being just a headline and seeing, like, what made Matt Matt and what made him so special just fade away. You know, he was just this headline and his humanity was disappearing. So, you know, that was something I was really struggling with. And I hope that I hoped that when I would be ready to make this film that I could give some of that back and show the world, you know, that he was just like everyone else, you know, just a normal young gay man just trying, you know, with trying to find his way in the world and who had friends and family who, like, cared about him and who missed him. Um, so I think it was, it was important for me to show the world that. Mm-hmm. And Sana, I know from talking to you over the last few years that it's been really difficult for you to even come to a point where you've been able to talk about your friend. Tell us about your experience making this film and, and how revisiting the memories now, 15 years later, was for you. Yeah, the film is, has been an emotional journey. Um, just signing on to, to do the film, I think, was a, um, a big question for me because it's opening yourself up in such a public way um, about something that's so personal and private and something that really I haven't been able to talk about much on a personal level. So to take that leap and start talking about it on, on a public forum was very difficult, but I, I knew how important it was, and I knew how I, I always wanted to do something to make sure 
we share our story um, and our mat and help do our part to educate the public and, and you know, raise that awareness. So as difficult as it was, um, what kept me going was I knew how important our work was, uh, was in the end. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't my first time visiting Wyoming, uh, but when we started the film and we went back to Casper, we went back to Laramie, and we talked to you know key people like Sheriff's Deputy Reggie Flutie, um, I learned some details in that journey that I didn't know uh, about what happened, um, and I think I sort of avoided learning too much, so this forced me to face my fears and learn some of the details, which I think in the end was very healthy. So one thing that's come from this project uh, that we've been working on for four years is that I'm now more able to speak about this on a personal level, and I'm much more able, whether it's at work with my coworkers or my friends, I think it was something I shied away from talking about, Mm -hmm. and now I've become more able to talk about it um, openly. Mm, yeah. Well, it must have been quite a roller coaster ride of emotions, but one definitely worth taking. And Michelle, how about for you? I, I know you and Zana both met with the Shepherd family and had the opportunity to go through all of Matt's things, you know, all the pictures and, and a lot of video footage that the public has never seen before. What was that like for you as the filmmaker and a friend? Honestly, I think that was the most meaningful part of making this film was just rediscovering all of that again. Um, Judy, I had heard about this box from Zaina. Um, Zaina told me that Judy, you know, kept this box of mats that he lugged around with him from place to place as he moved all around the country. And, um, but I didn't really know to what extent, um, like how large the box was and how many keepsakes and beautiful letters were in there. So when Judy let us go through it, I mean, that was just completely overwhelming you know we shot expensively in Laramie and went to the field where he was assaulted and I actually went into the hospital room where he died and that was all deeply affecting but for me to find these unsent letters these beautiful poems that he wrote about himself all these you know little keepsakes that I remember um that was so touching and just very emotionally emotionally difficult and it was just you could just feel mad again, very palpably, you know, sifting through the poems and him just talking about the things that he loved and the things, you know, that he didn't like about himself and what he was, you know, worried about and how, you know, just grocery lists, just everything. It was just Matt's voice coming back. Um, so that was, that was just so meaningful, and I'm so grateful to Judy for allowing us to go through the, those um, materials. Um, but I was also just very... I think confronted, newly confronted with how much I, I missed him and missed having him as a friend. Um, but when we found all those materials and we went and I went through all those home videos, I just instantly knew that this would be the heart of the film, you know, that Matt's voice would be like the mm-hmm. through line through the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Mm. And having seen the film, it really does provide an insight into Matt Shepard as opposed to the icon for hate crimes the world knows as Matthew Shepard. And as you think about those differences, Michelle, what are you hoping to show the world about your friend, Matt? Yeah, I think the Matthew Shepard that the world knows is completely different from the Matt Shepard that, you know, we knew and loved. And I think, um, sort of in retrospect, me thinking about all of this through all these years and making this the film, um, the missing element to the overall Matthew Shepard 
Matthew Shepard's story has always been his humanity and then and the idea that he was an actual, you know, living person with hopes and dreams, you know, who struggled on and off with depression like a lot of us do. And I think our film, you know, does a really good job through the personal lens of his family and friends, you know, in sharing Matt's humanity and like and his essence and what made him such an amazing person. Well, this next question is really for all of you. Over the last 15 years, there have been several movies made about what happened to Matt, one that tried to tell the story of his life, and some books written about both the story of his life and and what happened. And aside from the book that his own mother wrote, none of these books or movies come from firsthand knowledge about who Matt was. I mean, your documentary is really the first movie that is going to have firsthand knowledge and information in it. And over the last 15 years, there's been a great deal of urban mythology that's been created to rewrite this story. Talk about some of the myths that you've heard and the truths that you think are most important for people to know about Matt. Jason, let's start with you. I mean, you followed this story both as a personal friend of Matt's and then as a news reporter who tracked every single detail of the case and now as the executive director of the foundation Matt's parents created in his name. Well, there are a lot. And so here's a case that got the attention of millions of people in the United States and all over the world. And it became apparent very early on that people were interested in what happened and they felt a need to know and to hear from the victims and from the community. So in the very first few days, there was, and first of all, there's Matt gets found and nobody knows what happened. Why is he tied to a fence? Why is he in a coma? Why was he so severely beaten that he's probably not going to make it? Who did this? What was behind it? So you have a not insubstantial gay community and a community of Matt's friends in Laramie, in Casper, in the West and around the world because he had traveled so much who want to know what on earth happened to him. And are, is there a, you know, is there a killer on the loose in our community? So people, his friends, other gay people become very concerned about what happened and are we safe? And very quickly, because of exemplary police work, we find out who they think did it and under what circumstances. And there's initial comments from then Sheriff Pulse for Albany County that they're investigating the possibility that this crime may have been at least partly motivated by Matt being gay. Um, and this was, I think, important to his friends and to the community because it's only 1998 at this point. We're in Wyoming. It's a rural place. And that's not to say that gay people are unwelcome in Laramie. I think that would be an oversimplification. It's not to say that there's an epidemic of these kinds of crimes in Wyoming. That certainly is not borne out statistically. But, you know, we all grew up during that period hearing about, thinking about maybe being the victims of or fearing being the victims of what I think people mostly called gay bashing back then. Um, and there's no specific legal protection for it. And so immediately this, especially the sheriff making those comments and his friends being very concerned to make sure it wasn't swept under the rug or covered up in some small town crooked way that you fear through popular culture, which it wasn't. Um, that's a piece of news. So it gets in the local media, 
the local media sends its copy to the Associated Press every night. The Associated Press is accessed by the Denver TV stations, the Denver newspapers. Those papers are more widely noticed by papers and TV stations and other outlets nationwide, and those outlets are seen and heard worldwide. And so the story's interesting, it's compelling, it's unclear what happened, it's unclear if the victim will make it, it's unclear if something really bias-motivated and ugly has occurred. Um, that's news, uh, and it travels. So it travels quickly enough um, that it's the headline in the Minneapolis paper a couple days later when the shepherds are changing airplanes on their way to the hospital in Fort Collins, and they're as puzzled as anyone. And all of us in Wyoming are puzzled when reporters start showing up from the New York Times and the BBC, and we understand a vigil is forming out in front of the hospital in Fort Collins. And so the first, the first round is Wyoming is this awful place where gay people are beaten up and no one cares about or protects them. And to those of us who were gay in Wyoming, we considered that misinformation and tried to set context and a broader picture of what it's really like there uh, in our defense as Wyomingites. And then the case goes forward, confessions, trial record, exemplary judicial proceedings under the withering scrutiny of the world um, bring out what they believe happened in large part because of the confession of Aaron McKinney himself to investigators uh, and the defense's effort to uh, use the so-called gay panic defense. Um, there's an effort made to by the defense to say this was a gay guy and I don't like gay people and he touched my leg and I lost it and I had to kill him, basically. Um, and this outrages the world and inflames the coverage even more uh, because of the obvious implication that it's the victim's fault somehow. Uh, then, nine years ago, the ABC TV news magazine 2020 mounts a very revisionist account that draws on some producers and other folks in the gay community who either don't like the idea of hate crimes legislation philosophically or politically, uh, who suspect there's been some kind of small town cover up the other direction to dress it up as a hate crime, which is fundamentally absurd. Um, and so that propagates and you have Tectonic Theater Project devoting most of Laramie Project 10 years later to a, a, an effort to comb through that and debunk it. So the truth is, as best we can ever know it, because the victim is no longer with us to talk about what happened, what came out from police, from sheriff's investigators, from the prosecutors, in open trial, under sworn testimony, with uh, guilty pleas ultimately by both assailants, life sentences, one of whose sentence he later appealed and was rejected by the Wyoming Supreme Court, and that is the account of what happened. Um, Matt Shepard was killed by a person who described himself as homophobic and described his victim as fag and uh, gay and queer looking. And, you know, Wyoming's not a horrible place. There wasn't a cover up of the crime, there wasn't a cover up the other direction. That's just what happened. 
And it's a tragedy that got so many people's attention. Uh, and some of those people are people who weren't happy to see all the coverage or to see the case treated with the dignity and public attention and mourning that it was. And I suppose with almost anything controversial or prominent that happens in the world, people will try to fill in the pieces of it with their own supposition and their own mm -hmm. biases. And that's just part of the fabric of the story or of any story that, that gets people emotionally activated. Mm -hmm. Zaina, how about you? What are some of the truths you think are most important for the world to know about your friend Matt? I think ultimately what a good friend he was and what a good person he was. And that there's more to him than obviously the name or the image or photo I think that the public uh, is uh, familiar with. You know, I think that he was a full, well-rounded person that was just taken too soon and that he had his struggles just like any 21-year-old does or any teenager does. You know, and I think that... Um, Showing the world who he was helps people relate to him on a, an even deeper level. And, you know, he wanted to change the world, but being 21 years old, you don't quite know how you're going to do that yet. And I think that's something we all can, can relate to. Right, right. Well, I've often said that Matt has changed the world in ways that he could have never imagined through his story. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, if I could just jump in, you know, I, I think... I think it is a difficult thing for a lot of the folks who really knew and loved Matt, you know, that he became this, this martyr and this symbol. You know, on the other hand, I think that, you know, as someone who didn't know him but is pretty familiar with the story, I think that, you know, we can all agree that the symbol of Matt has had great value in terms of influencing the way the public views, like issues of LGBT inequality and hate crimes and the like. And so I think one of the, one of the great things about the film is I think that it, you know, it, by filling him out more as a person and making him more of a, a real-life human being, I think it ultimately makes him more accessible to more diverse groups of people who can then sort of, you know, begin to think a little bit more carefully or deeply than they might have about, you know, the things that he represents and, you know, empathizing with people who are different from them. Right. So that aspect of it, I'm, I'm you know, I'm glad that we've been able to do that. Right. And that's really the power of your film, because it does come from firsthand knowledge of people who actually knew Matt Shepard for the years preceding his death. And the reality is that this is the best information we're ever going to have, because as Jason said earlier, Matt's gone, and all that's left are those who truly knew him. Liam, tell us about when and where the film is going to premiere. Um, the film is going to have a coast-to-coast -coast premiere on October 4th. Uh, the world premiere is going to happen at the Mill Valley Film Festival uh, in the Bay Area, which we're absolutely thrilled about. Um, and the East Coast premiere is going to happen at the Washington National Cathedral uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, as part of a special weekend that's going to uh, commemorate the memories of uh, Matthew Shepard and Tyler Clementi. Um, so we're really, really excited. Uh, both the Cathedral and Mill Valley Film Festival have just been amazing. Wow, that's so great. So mark your calendars now. You can be part of the world premiere of Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine at the Mill Valley Film Festival. The first showing is coming up on Friday, October 4th, with a second showing on Sunday, October 6th. Tickets are now available at the Mill Valley Film Festival website, www.mvff.com. 
And if you missed that website, we'll have it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. To all of you, congratulations on a wonderful project and creating a real tribute to your friend, Matt Shepard. Michelle Hossaway, Zainab Barkawi, Liam McNeef, and Jason Marsden, thank you all so much for spending time with us tonight. Thanks, Greg. Thanks again for having me. It's my pleasure entirely, Greg. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick music break. This is singer-songwriter Randy Driscoll with a tribute she wrote to Matthew Shepard called What Matters. You were the brightest angel Heaven had ever seen You walked in with the story to tell Ten thousand tongues to scream And you said Doesn't your heart beat the same as mine? Heaven, I told you a thousand times Isn't the air in my lungs the same you breathe? So who cares? Whose arms I'm all wrapped up in? Who cares whose eyes I see myself in? Oh 
Our last guest tonight is Nathan Mansky, who created the popular website and organization called I'mFromDriftwood.com, and he's back with us tonight to talk about an event he's hosting here in the Bay Area next month. Hi, Nathan. Welcome back to Outbeat Radio. Thank you. It's good to be back. Well, it's always good to have you. And for our listeners who are not familiar with I'mFromDriftwood.com, tell us about this website and the work you're doing. Yeah, I'm from Driftwood uh, is an online archive of first-person LGBT stories from uh, predominantly from towns and cities across the U.S., but we also have some stories from other parts of the world. Um, so it's you know it's all first-person stories. I uh, encourage people to share stories that aren't all coming-out stories. I really want to capture the uh, the a, a broader sense of what the LGBT community is like. Um, you know, for, for kind of for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, it started predominantly to help queer youth in small towns realize that they're not alone. Uh, it's called I'm from Driftwood because I'm from Driftwood, Texas, um, and I, I knew what it felt like to feel like the only gay person in Texas, definitely, but also the entire world, just because I, I was so secluded from the rest of the world. Um, and But also, after we launched the, the site... Uh, people started letting me know what all these stories meant to them. So, uh, you know, we've helped a, a 50-year-old man come out uh, later in life. Um, you know, straight people have emailed me saying uh, how much better they understand or, or um, know more about the LGBT community because of these stories. Um, it's very unbiased and unthreatening to share a first-person story. So it's really helped um, connect people in a way that uh, other forms can't, that, that first-person stories really can. Um, so that's that's really what I'm from Driftwood is. And, you know, it's uh, we have written stories and, and a lot of video stories as well. So, and, and we've been we've been going for about, about four years. Um, so, you know, we have about close to 900 stories so far. Oh, wow. And your tagline yeah. is, I'm from Drift- Driftwood, saves lives and empowers communities. Who inspired you to create this site? Uh, Harvey Milk, actually. Um, the the story goes, I, I saw Milk um, soon after it came out in 2008. And uh, the film made me think about a photograph of Harvey Milk. Um, and in the photograph, he's, he's in the San Francisco Pride March. And he's holding a sign that reads, I'm from Woodmere, New York. And it really struck me as a little peculiar because everyone associates him with San Francisco. You know, he was the first openly gay uh, elected official um, in, in the U.S., and everyone just thinks about Harvey Milk and San Francisco. But here he was uh, claiming, or, or you know, proclaiming loudly that he's from this town in, in on Long Island that you know most people have never heard of. Um, and and that connected to me because here I was living in New York City, but I'm not from here. I'm from uh, Driftwood, Texas, and I thought that that would be a comforting thought to uh, LGBT youth in smaller towns that. Uh, no matter what you're going through or where you are, that you're not alone. So it was uh, it completely inspired by by Harvey Milk. Awesome. Well, you're living in New York now, and the operation is based there, but you're going to be here in the Bay Area coming up in October for an event. Tell us about that. Yes, I can't wait. I've been to San Francisco several times before in my life, and this is the first event that we're having for I'm from Driftwood in, in, uh, the, San Francis- in the whole area. So... Um, I, it, the, the event is uh, Wednesday, October 16th, and it's at a, 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 the home of a, a friend of mine um, in, in, uh, in San Francisco. And uh, it's from 6.30 to 9.30 uh, Wednesday evening. There'll be some appetizers and some drinks. Um, there'll be an after party at High Tops, which is uh, the, the gay sports bar in San Francisco. 
Um, so the the tickets are fifty dollars. Um, there's also a hundred and fifty dollar VIP ticket, uh, which will get recognition at the event. Um, you know, it's going to be kind of a smaller, more intimate thing. I, I think we're going to cut it off at fifty people because I really want to use this as an opportunity to uh, get to know people in the in the area uh, who care about um, LGBT stories and preserving our history. Uh, you know, if it's if it's too big of an event, it's harder for me to to get to know people and and meet them. Uh, so I'm I'm really looking forward to meeting. Uh, more people in San Francisco who uh, who have some sort of passion or, or care about uh, the work that we do and, and the storytelling, and so I'm I'm and I, I absolutely love San Francisco, so I really can't wait to get back. Great. So this is on Wednesday, October sixteenth, six thirty to nine thirty. A very intimate house party and a chance to meet you and learn more about the organization. Yes, and and all the information is at I'mFromDriftwood.com/sf. Well, Tony and I will be there and hope all of you will join us on Wednesday, October 16th, 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We'll have a link to get your tickets on our website at OutBeatNews.com. Nathan, thanks for dropping by tonight. We'll see you next month. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to it. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks to all of our guests tonight. Be sure to join me next month on the fourth Sunday of October for the next edition of OutBeat News in Depth and hear all about the new PFLAG group forming in Napa. I'll be back next Sunday night for a special edition of Outbeat Extra with Gary Carnavalli, and we'll be talking with some local LGBT politicians about some of the issues they're working on here in the North Bay. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with me. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutBeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.